Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Slogans come and slogans go, but I'm sure that many of you out there remember an ad campaign several years ago for Coca-Cola. It's the real thing, they proclaimed. The advertisers were saying that Coke was the real cola and all the others were imposters. Organic foods, too, claimed to be the real thing. Food without preservatives, chemicals, hormones, or steroids. Such food is becoming very popular in grocery stores these days. Increasing numbers of people are becoming convinced that natural and unenhanced and untreated products are the way to go. Our gospel lesson for today is also about the real thing. But this real thing is a lot more important than a pound of organic beef or a sugary, caffeine-laced soft drink. The real thing that St. Luke writes about here is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right away as you read this lesson, you see people asking this real thing question. They want to know if John the Baptist is the expected Messiah. Is he the Christ? They ask themselves in their hearts. It's not really such a strange question. John's ministry, after all, was having a very great effect on people. There were large crowds gathering. Tax collectors, soldiers, and religious leaders were all coming to see who John was, what he was saying, and what he was doing. It's a very natural question, then, for a group of people who are expecting something to happen that will help get them out from under the thumb of their oppressors. You see, at that time, the children of Israel were not a free people. They lived in an occupied land. Foreign soldiers, Roman soldiers, and mercenaries patrolled the streets and often harassed them. Corrupt government officials often overtaxed them. It would have been very easy for them to look back, remembering God's mercy and how he had delivered them once from slavery in Egypt, and expect that God would do something great once again. In their minds, if they were looking for someone who could take on the Romans, it was going to have to be a fearless, strong-talking person, someone like John. Everything that John said only heightened their expectations. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, he shouted. He let people know that things were going to change, and significantly. And many people were hoping and expecting the Messiah. All over the, all over the Old Testament, there were prophecies that told them to be ready. John seemed to fit the bill in so many ways. They wanted to know if he was the real thing. But John made it very clear. No, I am not. No matter what you may think you are seeing, when the real thing comes, he's going to do greater things than I do. In fact, I am so far beneath him, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. John was saying that in comparison to the real Messiah, he was only a slave. You see, slaves were tasked with tying their masters and untying their master's shoes. John says that the coming one, the real thing, would do much greater things than what he was doing. Even the thing that John was most known for was less than the real thing. John says that the baptism that he was doing was just with water, but that the real thing would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism was only in preparation 
for the real thing to come. He shouted at people, reminding them that they were sinners. You brood of vipers, he said. You need forgiveness. Forgiveness that can only come from God. Many people responded to John's message and were baptized in the Jordan River. It was a baptism in response to the Word of God's law, demanding repentance, and to God's Gospel, offering forgiveness. The greater one, though, the real thing that John was preparing the people to meet, would have a different kind of baptism for people, a baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's message gathered large crowds of people, but the real harvest was in the hands of the real thing yet to come. Just look at the words that he uses to describe them, what the Messiah would do. The winnowing fork to separate the chaff from the grain. Now some of you probably know far more than I do about this old way of processing the grain harvest, but many of you may not realize what it is that a winnowing fork actually does. In earlier times, before modern farming equipment, the stalks of grain were brought in from the fields to the threshing floor. There these stalks were beat with stones or with boards to separate the grain from the stems. The winnowing fork, kind of like a pitchfork in a way, was used to throw it up in the air so that the wind could blow away the lightweight chaff. The more substantial and weightier grain fell back down onto the threshing floor where it could be gathered. Notice that John says the Messiah will clear the threshing floor. He will thoroughly clean it. All of the chaff will be burnt in the fire, and every piece of grain will be taken care of and brought into the master's barn. That's a real harvest to be done by a real Messiah. And now the real Messiah comes. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is baptized. After all of John's preparations, after all of his telling of the crowds that the Messiah would do things differently, Jesus is baptized. It is rather funny in a way that, as St. Luke writes it, Jesus almost seems like an anonymous person in the crowd. Among all of those people coming to John, Jesus was also baptized. It's almost as if Jesus was trying not to attract too much attention, as he often did later on. And yet, Jesus' baptism is a very important part of his ministry. It is the public proclamation of what he has come to do, and that what he has come to do begins now. John is the one who baptizes Jesus, but Jesus is now the focus. John is the lesser. Jesus becomes the more important. John fades into the background, and Jesus stands alone. Luke wants us to know that, and John would agree. In another place, John says, I must decrease so he can increase. Jesus is the real thing. And just in case people weren't sure, the Holy Spirit makes an appearance in bodily form. St. Luke gives us this important detail. The Spirit's appearance here is not some secret thing that only Jesus and John saw, but bodily, in the form of a dove. And God the Father makes his appearance too. 
He speaks from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. In other words, you are the real thing. You are my promise of forgiveness of sins fulfilled. The work of the real thing is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What then is that work? Well, it's all spelled out for us in John's earlier statement that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Just as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Jesus, so also he will pour out the Spirit upon all those who are baptized in his name. According to Jesus' promise, just as the Holy Spirit came to him, the Holy Spirit came to each of you in your baptism. Each new brother and sister in Christ begins a new life in faith with baptism, a life lived in the shadow of the life that Jesus lived. And John says that with the Spirit comes fire. Some people take this to mean the tongues of fire that appeared above the apostles' heads on the day of Pentecost. But Pentecost was a unique event, and not all of us who have been baptized with water and of the Spirit have received such visible signs of fire. I've never seen that happen, and I expect that none of you have either. Yet we trust that our baptisms are indeed one of God's true means of rescue from sin and death, not because of visible signs, but because of his promise. No, the fire that John was actually talking about was God's anger, his wrath over sin, a calling of all who've been baptized into a life of continual repentance. That's what the fire is. In the Old Testament, when he talks about God's reaction to sin, it often talks about his anger burning. Jesus, though, was perfect. He was without sin. He didn't deserve God's anger and punishment, and yet it is placed upon him. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We fully see God's anger, his disapproval of sin, his punishment that sin deserves when we see that Lamb sacrificed upon the cross. There God's anger burns against Jesus. There on the cross, the full force of his disapproval over human sin is poured out upon his only son instead of on you or upon me. He actually turns away from Jesus and allows him to suffer the whole punishment of sin, the eternal punishment of sin, and sin's final wages, death. That too is the baptism of fire, the baptism John was talking about. The Spirit who descends on Jesus brings not only God's favor, but also connects Jesus to God's judgment. For you and for me, and for the next person who we will baptize here, the punishment passes over us in our baptism that is given in Jesus' name. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, when Jesus hangs on the cross, suffering and dying, he stands in our place, receiving the fire, the wrath, the anger of God over our sin. We are baptized into his life and into his resurrection, yes, but we are also baptized into his death. That's a baptism of Holy Spirit and of the fire. Jesus is the real thing. After he suffered the fire of God's anger, after he bled and he died on the cross, after he was placed into the tomb, he rose again from that death. The punishment the fire of God was taken to the grave, but Jesus returned to life. 
leaving that fire there. That's something that only the real thing can do. It proves that Jesus is no imitation Messiah, no imposter like so many who have come before and after. It proves that the punishment He bore for us was paid in full. It's proof to you and me who are connected to Him in baptism, that baptism of spirit and fire, that the work that He did, the work that He finished, was pleasing to God. Now what about you? You too are baptized children of God. You have been baptized with water, but yes, with the Holy Spirit and fire too. Whether it happened here, or in a hospital, or at home, or even in an entirely different church altogether, if it was done in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit of the Scriptures, it was the real thing too. That means that when you sin, when you fall short of God's plans and desires for your life, when you hurt your neighbor, when you yell at your children for no good reason, when you act selfishly, when you should be helping someone else, you then have a place to go. You don't have to fear God's burning anger over all your failures. When water was splashed over your head and the Word of God was spoken, your sin was washed away to Jesus. And God's fire, His anger over your sin was extinguished on the cross. That's why we confess our sins here each and every week and why we should do it regularly, daily, continually. We are reliving our baptism. We are recognizing and admitting our sin. And we are redirecting God's anger onto Jesus on that cross. No longer living in fear, you can now live differently. When you yell at your children, you can ask for forgiveness, and you can move on to a better way of handling them. When you are selfish, you can set that aside and be helpful instead. You can serve by doing whatever it is God has called you to do in the everyday work of your life. When you are hurtful, you can do what is necessary to set things right again. That's the Holy Spirit working in you through God's Word. That's Jesus, the real thing, moving you to live a life more like His. Nothing else really matters except for Jesus, the real thing. He who was baptized in the Jordan, lived, suffered, died, and rose again. John pointed to Him as being the most important. We recognize Him as being the most important in our lives. He is the beloved Son of the Father. Jesus Christ is the real thing. Amen.